We're in our series, um, Design for Glory, and we are in our third week. We're really talking about, number one, that to pursue the glory of God, to live for the glory of God, is ultimately to experience the joy of the Lord in your life, and that this is, this is a huge benefit and gives maximum capacity to actually live in, in what you're designed for, his glory. Uh, that joy and glory are really mutually beneficial, not mutually exclusive from one another. So I uh, wanted to go over a little bit of what we did this past Sunday in our sermon series and start with Psalm 103. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. So the again, the idea is the choice of what you pursue is yours. This is where your heart in many ways is most free, is the heart chooses what your your soul will focus on, what your mind, your your will, your emotions will focus on. And so here the psalmist is preaching to his own soul. Bless the Lord. In other words, let there be a singleness of purpose. Let there be a singleness of mind that the glory of the Lord, you know, it, my sights are on the glory of the Lord. And then he explains that as this happens, as you have an undivided heart, you have an undivided soul, you get all these benefits or these benefits are already coming to you. He forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. So we're talking about how Christ has united his glory to you. You're in a union relationship with Christ. So his beauty, you know, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That's the beauty of Christ. His victory, he redeems your life from the pit. He heals all your diseases. Victory. And gives you worth and value. Takes away your shame. He forgives all your iniquity takes away your guilt. And having these things stripped away, all of these burdens, the pit, the iniquity, the diseases, that your youth is renewed like the eagles, to live without guilt, to live without shame, to live without fear. So what, what the psalmist is, is, is saying to us here is that all of God's energy, his omnipotent, his all-powerful energy, is driving the very heart of God to satisfy your heart. I mean, this, this has got to be realized by every believer is God is not pursuing you to make you miserable. God is pursuing you to satisfy your heart. But there has to be a, a, a conversion of what you're looking for in that you're seeking your joy in him instead of seeking your joy in all these other things that are competitors to him. All idols, all true idols are good things that are made ultimate things. They take the place of God. 
So God delights in you and I learning that we have this we have this capacity for a greater happiness than just temporary or hormonal chemical happiness. As a matter of fact, he wants to make us ultimately happy, joy, joyful. <clears throat> and the scripture says, with all his heart and soul. This is an amazing statement in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, it, the, the people of God have not listened. In Jeremiah 32, the people of God have not listened to the prophet. They have tried to kill the prophet, Jeremiah. And yet still, in all of their rebellion, in all of their disdaining of the Lord, the Lord says to them, I will make... I will make with them an everlasting covenant. So here's a group of people who could not keep covenant with God. And yet God so pursues them as his people, that even when they are not doing good, he makes covenant with them. And he says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. And here, here, here's the heart of God. Listen, I will rejoice in doing them good. God rejoices in doing his people good. And then Jeremiah says, with all my heart and all my soul. Now, as a person who's grown up, who's grown up studying theology, this is an amazing passage. That God would use language so accommodating to us that we could understand how much his, his entire being is, is driven to satisfy our hearts, the hearts of his people, his sons and his daughters. So with all his heart, with all his soul, God, he's the one who made you have that drive, that pursuit of ultimate joy. And God is pursuing you to satisfy your heart in that ultimate sense, that ultimate way. But the key is that whether or not you seek your joy in him or you're seeking your joy in the things you're praying about. Oh, God, bless my family, my job, my, my marriage. Is, is your joy in that, or are, do those things point to your ultimate joy being in the Lord? I think about it that, and all the things in my life that bring me joy, even the things that bring me pleasure, none of them are the source of my joy. Because, you see, if, if any of those things become a source of joy, they can be taken away or, or, or they, it can get to where you can't do it or have it anymore. And then what happens? Now your source is gone. And what happens to many of us is when the source of our joy is touched, then we, we go to God. But God's saying, God is basically saying, you have made something in your life, even a good thing, you've made that the source of your joy, I have to be the source of your joy. And so you have God who is pursuing the satisfaction of your heart with his heart and his soul. And, and he protects and, and, and has made covenant to protect you and his glory in the same way. So his glory is to actually share with you his all-powerful joy. And he's able to do that when you cast yourself on God. The Lord takes pleasure in those 
who hope in his steadfast love. Even if, even if life isn't going the way you hope it go, even if things are out of your control, even if things are not, you know, look in some ways like, oh, this isn't going to result well. This isn't going to end well. This isn't going to have the good consequences that I hope to have. What What's being called upon you here is not to control circumstances and not to control outcomes. Not even necessarily to predict the outcomes, but to hope in the Lord. Listen, the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. Lisa did an amazing sermon a number of weeks ago on, on the hesed, on the the covenant love of the Lord on the on the loving kindness that that psalmist says is better than life. So what what you and I do is sometimes we look at things that are falling apart, or we're looking at things that aren't coming together like we want them to. And the psalmist says that's not the way to look at things. It's not that you ignore the fact that this isn't working out, or this is hard, or this is difficult, or this is wrong. But rather you look at it through the steadfast love of the Lord, which never fails, never fails. That's where your hope is not, your hope isn't, oh, I hope this turns out okay. That, those are wishful thinking because you don't have control over how things turn out. But your hope can be, but the steadfast Lord in the midst of this will never, ever fail me. See, he's, in a way, what, what, what is his, has said, what his steadfast love is, is a manifestation of the beauty of his glory. So Jesus has united his steadfast love to you, not because you deserve it, but because you have received him as Savior and Lord. So his steadfast love is united to you. And so you can cast every care on him and you can put all your hope in his steadfast love. And you see, as you do that, joy can now penetrate even in circumstances that are difficult or dire even. You don't have to, and, and I, you know, I look at like what Lisa's going through with cancer and I don't look at it and say, Lord, I rejoice in the cancer. Of course not. I hate cancer. You know, I curse it at its root. Shouldn't I don't want it to have any power in our lives whatsoever. But my hope is not in whatever happens with the cancer. My hope is in the steadfast love of the Lord that never fails. And 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 I don't tell him how things are going to turn out. I tell him how I want them to turn out. But how they turn out. I entrust to him and I hope in a steadfast love. And then that gives my heart an openness for joy. And then the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. You see, most of us are waiting to we see what the outcome is to decide whether we're joyful or not. So therefore, our joy is, is unstable. Our joy is up and it's down depending on people's circumstances, on our own moods. Instead of saying, wait a minute, that's not, that's not where the source of my joy is. All, with all his heart and soul, he is pursuing me so that I can have 
his omnipotent joy. And again, I mean, there's a lot going on in the world. A lot of things we don't like, a lot of things that could be cause fear and stuff. But but in the Trinity, and this is why this whole teaching on the Trinity is so important. In the Trinity, there is never a moment where joy is lacking between the Father and the Son, or the Son and the Father. There's never a moment where the fullness of Trinitarian joy isn't residing in the person of the Holy Spirit who has come to indwell me. If the source of my joy is Trinitarian joy, then the source is a never-ending supply. But if my source of joy is when things go my way, when there's nothing to fear, when there's nothing challenging me, then my joy will not, will not be a rejoicing in the Lord always. It will be a rejoicing in the Lord when it turns out the way I want it to. Now, he takes pleasure in those who, who hope in his steadfast love. It's such, an important, it's a, such an important piece of this because sometimes you say, well, what do I hope in? Well, I hope my, my, my firm foundation of hope, why my hope never goes away, is that it's in this steadfast love of the Lord that does not fail. And then Paul makes it clear that this steadfast love, this has said, is working behind the scenes in everything in your life. For those who love God, all things work together. And this is Romans 8. It's my favorite Bible verse. Never will not be my favorite Bible verse, I think. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those that are called according to his purposes. So here's where we get at the really the theme of this week. There is a distinction. There is a distinction. Jesus said there were sheep and there were goats. Jesus said there were wise and there were foolish. Paul says there are those being saved and those who are perishing. And the only difference between them, and this is, this is our theme, the only difference between them is one has been converted to Christ, converted by Christ, converted by the joy of the Lord, and one has not. It, it, it isn't merely a decision to be a better person. It is a conversion from who you were apart from Christ to who you are now in Christ. And there is a sense in which there, there, I've met people who make kind of obligatory decisions fearful of death, fearful of different things, who make decisions, maybe under coercion, you know, and, and pray a prayer. The more I study this and the longer I watch people, there has to come a time when Jesus isn't just, isn't just someone I'm, I'm, I'm making an obligatory, you know, religious choice for but rather he's someone that I welcome gladly as the treasure of my heart. At some point, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, my heart has to be made glad at what he's done for me. That he becomes not just someone in my life, he becomes the treasure of my life. And the truth is that until he is the true treasure, then he is not the fullness of joy that we have the capability of experiencing. 
And it is the joy in Christ that actually glorifies Christ. It's the joy in Christ that actually honors Christ. So it's so important. It's so essential to believe in Jesus. It's so important to realize you need a Savior and accept him as the one who saves you from your sins. Also important, so important because who he is, he is the Lord, he is the leader of your life. But what does that mean in a personal way? It means Jesus becomes your treasure. He becomes ultimate to you. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, if you understand the Lord's Prayer, then the spot where we pray, hallowed be your name, is basically a petition that Jesus taught us to pray that is saying that before I ask for the bread and before I ask for anything else, then the first and foremost thing that I'm saying is Jesus, Son of God, hallowed be your name. In other words, what I'm saying is when I hallow something, I'm saying it's ultimate to me. I'm saying more than the bread that I need to eat, more than the forgiveness that I need, all those things that I need, they are important. But before any of those things, I've come to understand that Jesus, you are ultimate to me. You are my treasure. See, one of the problems that many of us have is is that we're actually praying for our treasure and asking God to resource our treasure instead of saying, God, you are my treasure. And these things that I need are not my treasure. And this is, this is so essential in understanding the joy relationship with God. Is that if what you're praying for is your treasure, then that is your idol. And God cannot give success to your idol. But if what you're praying for is not your treasure and God is your treasure, Jesus is your treasure, gladly your treasure then no good, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so you begin to realize that many of the things that he's had to say no to you over the years were not because God is stingy or unable or unwilling to provide. It's because you are asking, God, provide my treasure. And God was saying, until I'm your treasure, I cannot provide that. And so, so many times... And in this life, there are things that bring us such pleasure, bring us such joy, bring us such focus that they become our treasure. And when they do that, they usurp the place of God. Now, I mean, some of what I'm saying right now can only be experienced. It can only truly be experienced that God is your treasure if you've experienced the new birth, if you've experienced being born again. Why is that? Well, because Scripture is really clear that apart from a spiritual change, a change of heart, a change of status, change of mind, that we fail to live for or even we fail to see and and understand the glory of God. I mean... The call on your life is beautifully expressed in Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. 
Bring everyone who is called by my name, whom, listen to what he says, I created for my glory. So every single human being was created for the glory of God. And so the proper understanding of your life, my life, it all begins with God and his purpose. And the reason that we must be born again, the reason we must experience conversion, the new birth, is all found in the, in the purpose for which God created us. So he created us in his image. And I love this, I love this way to say it. He created us in his image so we would image forth his beauty, his victory, his worth, his value, his permanence, his glory into the world. One person said it this way, we were made to be prisms refracting the very light of God's glory into all of our life, every area. You know, we, have, we don't understand exactly because the heart of God, the mind of God is so above us. We don't understand why he's given us a share in shining with his glory. It's a great mystery. It's out of his grace, his mercy, his love for us. It's really kind of an unspeakable wonder that God's, God gave you this purpose to refract, to, to shine forth the very glory of God as the purpose of your life, to be as beautiful, to be as worthy, to be as victorious as the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you and I are empowered by the same glorious Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus the anointing of Jesus was with the Holy Spirit that he has said he has sent to us, not a different spirit, but the exact same spirit. So then it becomes a realization, if this is my purpose to live for the glory of God, and, and Paul says it so clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If God made us for his glory, then it becomes clear that you cannot realize your destiny. You cannot live in your design if you're not opening up and, and, and saying, I'm going to give access to his glory in my life. How I live will be according to the design of God's glory. We talked a little bit about, I talked a little about this on Sunday, that to glorify God doesn't make God more glorious. But it's you beginning to realize how in some ways, how lacking of glory you are. And then beginning to acknowledge how glorious he is. You, you look in the mirror and say, I'm not beautiful enough, but Jesus has attached his perfect beauty to you. I'm not loving enough. You are now united to all the love of Christ. I'm not worthy. Now you're united with all the worth of the Son of God. Father, his Father sees you as a son or a daughter in the same way that he sees Jesus as his son. It's an amazing, it is an amazing exchange. It is not us trying to make him glorious, it's us recognizing his glory and then by faith saying, his glory is in me. And then to value that. See, if all I ever do is look in the mirror and see my faults and say, oh, I'm I'm not worth loving, then I'm not valuing his glory. I'm just, I'm just living in my own lack of glory. And, 
And if, you see, my heart begins to be so changed by the fact that he has given me his glory out of his grace and his love and his mercy towards me, if I, if I understand that, then I want to make it known to others. I mean, when I see people, when I see people who are workaholics and perfectionists, and when I see people who live in fear, who, who you know, just try with all their might to get people's approval, those are people who are not acknowledging the glory of God, but they're also people who have never come to experience the glory of God. And I want to make it known because the greatest psychological healing that can take place is to exchange your glory for his glory and then to live in his perfect glory. But you have to value it. And this is where your heart, this is where your heart is so important. Your heart decides what you value. And you see, what you value, you will give thanks for. What you value, you will give thanks for. The psalmist says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to, to acknowledge his glory in you and for you. To give thanks for it is actually what glorifies God. See, you're not trying to make yourself more glorious. You're recognizing your bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy of glory. And you're recognizing that he has given his full glory to you. And you're giving thanks. And that glorifies God. It doesn't glorify God if you try to make yourself glorious. It glorifies God when you acknowledge and receive his glory as your own. Listen to how Abraham is described. He grew strong in his faith, not as he tried to make himself more glorious, but as he gave glory to God. And here, I mean, this is a, there's a little bit of difficulty stuff that I need to hit here at the end. Glorifying God is the design of every human being. And the Bible's really clear that there are people who all they have is the witness of nature and all they have is their own conscience. conscience. Romans 1 says God's invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, remember what I was saying. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to actually value it in such a way that you begin to realize how much thanksgiving you have for it. Having seen your own spiritual bankruptcy and realizing how God in Christ has given you his beauty, his victory, his worth, his his permanence, his steadfast love that never fails. And you begin to give thanks for it. Now, the opposite is there are, there are people all over the world who have every reason to know that God is glorious and that God is God, even without the Bible. And so even in the sense of just looking at nature, just looking at the creation, just hearing their own hearts, they owe him, in a sense, the gratitude, and they owe him a trust that the creator is their creator. 
And so even, Paul is saying, even deep within every single person that's ever lived, there is a duty, there is a a call to glorify the maker by thanking him for all we have, trusting in him for all we need, and obeying all his revealed will. But you see, the desperation of our condition is such that we cannot do that without a spiritual rebirth. Matter of fact, none of us have met the standard of glorifying God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3.23. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what does it mean to fall short? It does not mean that we're supposed to be as glorious as God, and in that we've fallen short. No, we've fallen short in the sense that Romans 1.23 says. Listen to this. We did not glorify or thank God. And Romans 1.23 says we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. This is the way we fall short, is we exchange the glory of God for something of lesser value. Paul goes on to say, all of us have done this. There's none righteous, no, not one. In other words, and here's where I'll close. We must acknowledge none of us has trusted God the way we should. None of us has felt the depth and consistency of gratitude we owe him. None of us have, none of us have obeyed him according to his wisdom and his right as being our creator. Instead, exchanging his glory, we have trusted ourselves. We have taken credit for his gifts. We have turned away from the path of his commandments. And here's the key, because we thought we knew better. To exchange the wisdom of God and the glory of God for something lesser. And ultimately, the reason is this, we think we know better. So that's why it is not simply to understand that there's glory or to perceive that there is beauty in God, but rather rather to delight ourselves in Jesus as our treasure and then to realize that he takes his beauty and his, his worth and he takes his victory and he applies it to our life. And we begin to live in gratitude. Jesus, your victory is my victory. Your beauty is your steadfast love that never fails, and you have lavished your steadfast love on me. I was not a person of worth. I was not a person of value. But when I repented of trying to pursue my own glory, of settling for lesser things, then I received your glory. I do not know better. You, O Lord, know the path of life. And I turn to you. And this is the key, you see. The key is not that you try to be a better, more glorious, more beautiful you. The key is that you recognize and be done with lesser things. This is what true repentance is. And gladly receive Jesus as your treasure. And then refract his glory. Not just reflect, but refract. In other words, he has so much glory that as you let it come in, you become a prism that refracts his glory into your your job, your family, 
your relationships, your health, your, your everything. And then you're living according to your design. You were designed for glory. 